Good evening and welcome again. Thank you, Kirk, for reading our scripture tonight. Appreciate so much your presence. We're very grateful for the opportunity to be here tonight. We're very grateful that you've chosen to come back and be with us tonight. Uh, it's good to have a number of visitors with us. Uh, we've got Kevin Rhodes with us tonight from Texas, and Kevin is going to be in town doing some things for GBN. He has a program on GBN. He's going to be on the live program this coming Thursday night, and he's been on the program several times, always does an outstanding job. And so we appreciate so much, Kevin. Glad that he's here tonight, and uh, very glad that you're here. This morning we had the Freeman family with us. Uh, Brother Freeman preaches for the East Haven congregation, and their power was out. And so he and his family were able to be with us this morning, and we were very glad to have them with us. And so if you're visiting, as always, we invite you to come back. We're so grateful that you've chosen to come and be with us tonight. I do want to mention very quickly, our youth group's going to be taking a trip on Tuesday, this coming Tuesday afternoon. They will be going to Newton, Iowa, and they will be there through Sunday. Is that right, Jared? No? Monday? No Sunday? They'll be back sometime. <laughs> anyway... Uh, Keep them in your prayers. Uh, I know that they'll do a great job, and so I want to keep all of them in our prayers at this time. Tonight, I want us to do something a little bit different in the sense that there are some things that I want to share with you by way of information. We're going to be talking tonight in our study about instrumental music in worship. And we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 3, and I have a number of of things that I would like to share with you by way of history. And what I want to do in a very simplistic way is first of all look at what the historical record has to say about instrumental music and worship to God. And then secondly, I want to look at the biblical the biblical record. What does the Bible have to say about instrumental music in worship to God? And I have a number of things to read tonight and I hope that you'll bear with me. It's not that I want to be burdensome or boresome in reading some statements to you, but I think in order for us to appreciate the subject and in order for us to appreciate what the Bible has to say, and particularly as it relates to the early church, the apostolic church, we need to hear what history has to say. And so with that in mind, I want to begin tonight by looking at Colossians chapter 3, the passage that was read a moment ago. When Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, the time was about A.D. 62 or 63. Paul, as you well know, wrote four prison epistles, this being one of them. And so in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul would say, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In other words, let the word of God find a home in your heart. And I think about the words of the psalmist in Psalm 1, verse 2. When the psalmist said that he meditated on the law of the Lord and on that law... He meditated both day and night. So he said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And then verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Many people, when they visit churches of Christ, will oftentimes ask the question, why do you not use an instrument of music in your worship to God? And I think that's a fair question. As a matter of fact, many people, upon their first visit to a congregation of our people, 
That's one of the more noticeable things. And so we don't have a choir section, we don't have a band, we don't have a piano or an organ, and so they typically want to know, why do you not use some type of instrument in praise to God? Well, I think it's incumbent on us, matter of fact, I know it's incumbent on us to be able to share what the Bible has to say. You remember the apostle Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. So what we want to do is to give them a Bible answer. And then I think about what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, when he wrote, sanctify the Lord God in your heart and be ready to give an answer to every man that asketh you of the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. Two things here. Number one, we need to know what we believe. Number two, we need to know why we believe it. So when we talk about instrumental music, whether or not we are to use it in worship, well, we need to know, what does the Bible say? Why do we believe what the Bible teaches? Why do we practice a cappella singing? So with that in mind, I want us to think again about what Paul said. Paul would say in verse 17 in Colossians chapter 3, whatever you do, in word or in deed, that is in word or practice, we are to do it by the authority of Jesus Christ. So when we talk about this subject as well as any other biblical subject, what we want to do is appeal to what the Bible has to say, and we're going to do that in just a minute. But I would preface everything that I say by calling attention to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. You remember Jesus said before ascending to heaven, all authority... All power has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. And again, I think about the words of God the Father. When Jesus Christ was transfigured before Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Bible says that a voice came forth from heaven. And God the Father said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And then he said, Hear him. So whatever the Lord has to say, we want to hear him. And then in John chapter 3, you remember when Jesus had a conversation with the woman at Jacob's well? And in, during the course of their conversation, they began to talk about worship and Mount Gerizim. And Jesus said, the hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall men worship the Father. But he said, the hour is coming when men shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And then he would say in verse 23, the Father seeks such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, there's some things that we ought to think about here. Number one, the aim of worship is God, isn't it? Jesus said, God is spirit, and they that worship him. The they there would be the assembly, wouldn't it? Those of us who come together to worship God. I think about the words of the psalmist when he said, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. So we are lifting up worship to God. The word worship means worship. And so the idea is acts of reverence paid to deity. So we have the aim of worship, the assembly who worships. And then Jesus said those who worship him must worship. That would be the absolute. In other words, it's incumbent on us to follow his divine direction. So again, Jesus said, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. To worship God in spirit would be to worship him with the right attitude. 
And then to worship him in truth would be according to his word. So those are the directives of New Testament worship. So with regard to instruments of music in worship to God, the question is, what does the Bible say? So having said that, I want you to consider with me some statements that have been made by historians and scholars in the past, and I want to begin by sharing a statement or two that was made by William Woodson in an article entitled, The History of Instrumental Music. Brother Woodson was a tremendous scholar, and I had the opportunity to sit at his feet in college. Brother Woodson was, well, he was just a scholar scholar. So here's what he had to say. It is crucially important to observe that although instrumental music of various types was readily available in contemporary society, no passage shows that the churches mentioned in the New Testament ever used instrumental music in worship. Did they not understand that the true meaning of the Old Testament, particularly the Psalms? Did they not understand the meaning of various words such as solo, etc.? so often discussed pro and con in contemporary debates? Did they not know the Jewish practices both in the temple and in the synagogues? Did they not know the mind of God? Most certainly on all these questions and much more. Yet there is not even a hint of the use of instrumental music in the worship of these churches. He said these facts of New Testament history stand as a stone barricade against any attempted justification of the use of instrumental music in worship today. If present appeals to the Old Testament, solo, the temple or synagogue practices, etc., legitimately warrant such use, why did the apostles and brethren in the first century not so understand and incorporate instrumental music into the worship of these churches? Such facts are not lightly to be dismissed or forgotten. The several general periods of religious history, from the close of the, of the New Testament until the present, have been searched many times from many viewpoints. These searches yield one significant fact for the present topic, which is clear and unassailable. Instrumental music in worship within churches professing to serve Christ did not emerge until hundreds of years after the close of the New Testament. Now that's significant. Brother Woodson was a tremendous scholar. And then let me read for you a statement by Everett Ferguson. Brother Ferguson wrote a book entitled A Cappella Music in the Public Worship of the Church. This book, monumental. Brother Ferguson was a student at Harvard University. And here's what he had to say. The absence of any clear reference to in instrumental music in the church's worship was not accidental. It was not mentioned because it was not there. There is no time when one point, when one can point to the use of instruments of music in the church being abandoned. It is quite late before there is evidence of instrumental music. First, the organ employed in the public worship of the church. Recent studies put the introduction of instrumental music even later than the dates found in reference books, perhaps as late as the 10th century when the organ was played as part of the service. 
Some would cite somewhere in the early 600s in the American Encyclopedia, Volume 7. The statement is made, Pope Vitalian is regarded to have first introduced organs into some of the churches of Western Europe about 670. The earliest trustworthy account is that of one sent as a present by the Greek Emperor Constantine to Pepin, King of Franks in 755. Now, Ferguson said the instrument wasn't introduced till possibly as late as the 10th century. But even so, if it was introduced in the 600s, still that's some, what, 500 years after the establishment of the New Testament church. And then, let me read another statement or two for you. McClintock and Strong, in their Cyclopedia of Biblical, Theological, and Ecclesiastical Literature, Volume 6, here's what they say. The Greeks, as well as the Jews, were wont to use instruments as accompaniments in their sacred songs. The converts to Christianity accordingly must have been familiar with this mode of singing. Yet it is generally believed that the primitive Christians failed to adopt the use of instrumental music in their religious worship. Now think about it. Here are secular writers. And what they're saying is, in the apostolic church in the first century, they did not use instruments of music in worship to God. Adam Clark. Many of you know that Adam Clark was a renowned Methodist commentator. He was against the usage of instruments of music in worship. And here's what he had to say in his commentary on 2 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 25. The whole spirit, soul, and genius of Christian religion are against this. And those who know the church of God best and what constitutes its genuine spiritual state Know that these things have been introduced as a substitute for the life and power of religion. And where they prevail most, there is least of the power of Christianity. He said, away with such portentous baubles from the worship of that infinite spirit who requires his followers to worship him in spirit and in truth. For to no such worship are those instruments friendly. John Calvin, one of the founders of the Presbyterian Church, along with John Knox. In his commentary on Psalm 33, here's what he had to say. Musical instruments in celebrating the praises of God would be no more suitable than the burning of incense, the lighting of lamps, and the restoration of other shadows of the law. He said the Papists, therefore, have foolishly borrowed this as well as many other things from the Jews. Now think about that. Here are men that had a founding part in their denominational bodies. And based on what they have said, their conclusion was instrumental music was not a part of the New Testament church. And then let me read for you what Charles Spurgeon had to say. Spurgeon preached to about 10,000 people per week. He was one of the greatest Baptist preachers of his day. Believe it or not, he opposed instrumental music in worship. He preached for the Metropolitan Baptist Tabernacle in London. In his comments on the 42nd Psalm taken from the treasury of David, here's what he said. David appears to have had a peculiarly, peculiarly tender remembrance of the singing of the pilgrims. And assuredly, it is the most delightful part of, of worship and that which comes nearest to the adoration of heaven. 
What a degradation to supplant the intelligent song of the whole congregation by the theatrical prettiness of a quartet, the refined niceties of a choir, or the blowing off of wind from inanimate bellows and pipes. He said, we might as well pray by machinery as praise by it. Now, I read those statements not because they are the authority, but I simply read them to share with you the sentiments of many, many people down through the years. And you could go back and look at other historical writers. And there are any number of people that have written about this subject. They have searched and sifted not only what the Bible has to say, but the historical record itself. And their conclusion was simply this. Instruments of music were not used in first century worship to God. As a matter of fact, they came hundreds of years after the establishment of the New Testament church. So, having said that, and just very briefly looking at the historical record, I want you to consider with me for a moment or two what the Bible has to say, because after all, this is ultimately what's most important, isn't it? I mean, ultimately, the question is, what does God say on the matter? If God says we are at liberty to use instruments of music and worship, then by all means we ought to use them. But if God forbids it, then we ought to forbid it. And let me just make this observation very quickly. Many of the mainline congregations that are in existence today, the statements that I read by some of their founding fathers, their founding fathers were strongly against the usage of instruments of music in worship to God. And really what strikes me about that is, over time, little by little, changes occur, don't they? And so you think about many of these mainline denominations today, they use instruments of music in worship to God. And sadly, many of those people do not know that their founding fathers were strongly against it. And so what happens is, over time, innovations occur. And over time, people quit questioning things. And they quit asking, what does the Bible say about the matter? And so what we want to do is think about what does the Bible say? Now I would say this in all fairness. We are not immune in churches of Christ to those bringing the instrument in. I wish I could stand before you tonight and say that congregations today 100% oppose usage of instruments of music and worship to God, but I can't do that. I can think of congregations, old mainline churches, as we would say, that at one time would never have thought about using an instrument, of, an instrument in their worship, but not the case today. There's a congregation in the city of Nashville. When I was in school some years ago, I remember it was one of the old mainline congregations. And about three years ago, they introduced the instrument into one of their services. And if I remember correctly, the idea behind it was, well, it'll help us to reach the unchurched. And so the idea is, the end justifies the means. So as I thought about what they said with regard to the instrument and bringing that 
instrument into their worship service. I went back and listened to what the preacher had to say about the usage of an instrument. And really what struck me was in his initial defense for why they were now using the instrument. He said, there hasn't been a lesson on instrumental music preached from this pulpit in 30 years. And I thought, you know, that's telling, isn't it? Really, that was an indictment against those who have preached there. It was an indictment against the eldership, and really and truly it was an indictment against the membership. If people haven't heard a lesson about instrumental music in 30 years, do you think they're going to know what the Bible has to say about it? Probably not. And so, with that in mind, I, I, I think it's tragic that a lot of congregations are following suit and they are now using the instrument. And again, the question, why? The second question is, where's your authority? Because everything that we're talking about ultimately hinges upon the authority of Christ, doesn't it? So, in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, Paul said, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now when we think about the command here to sing, the command is very specific, isn't it? Generically, we talk about music. But God specified what he wants, didn't he? God said to sing. Now I want to go back and look at an Old Testament example very quickly along these lines. Go back and look at Genesis chapter 6 for a moment. God instructed those in the first century to sing. God instructs us today in the 21st century to sing and to make melody in our heart to the Lord. With regard to generic and specific authority, you remember in Genesis chapter 6, God had decreed that he was going to destroy the world by means of a flood. The Bible tells us in verse 8 that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 12 God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now look at verse 14. God said, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, he said, shall be 300 cubits. In other words, 450 feet. He said, its width, 50 cubits, or 75 feet. Its height, 30 cubits, or 45 feet. So God detailed specifically the dimensions of the ark. And not only did he specify the dimensions of the ark, but he specified the kind of wood that was to be used, didn't he? What if God had told Noah to just build an ark with wood? Would Noah have been at liberty to use any kind of wood? Could he have used pine? Cherry? 
Or any other kind of wood? Yes. But God said specifically, all right, Noah, I want you to build an ark using what kind of wood? Gopher wood. So when God said, I want you to use gopher wood, did that not exclude every other kind of wood? Sure it did. So when God says to us to sing, what does that mean? It means to sing. Right? All right, I want you to think about another passage very quickly. Look, if you would, at, go over to the book of Deuteronomy for a moment. Look in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10. You know, we talk about generic and specific authority. We talk about the silence of the scriptures. And some might ask the question, does silence prohibit or permit us to do certain things? Well, when God said to use gopher wood, what did that mean? It meant to use gopher wood. That meant you can't use any other kind of wood, didn't it? All right, so look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 8. In verse 8, here's what Moses said regarding the Levites. At that time, the Lord separated the tribe of Levi to bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, and to bless in his name to this day. So when God separated the tribe of Levi, to function in a priestly capacity. Would you say that excluded all other tribes from engaging in that type of work? Sure. As a matter of fact, if you go back and you look at the record, God didn't have to say, all right, the tribe of Judah, they cannot engage in priestly work. He didn't have to say the tribe of Simeon. Or any other tribe for that matter, did he? Now, again, think about what we're, what we're discussing tonight, instrumental music. There are people today, as we explore this subject, have difficulty understanding specific and generic authority. They have difficulty understanding the silence of the scriptures. Now think, think again about what Paul said. Sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. God said to sing, and that was it. Now, let me call attention to another passage of scripture. Look over in the book of Ephesians for a minute. Look, look at Ephesians chapter 5 for a moment or two. In Ephesians, the fifth chapter, in verse 19, Paul said, Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. One of the battlegrounds that has been fought in days gone by has to do with the Greek word solo, to make melody. The word is found some five times in the, in the New Testament. J.H. Thayer, 
who was the professor of New Testament criticism and interpretation in the Divinity School at Harvard University. Here's what he had to say about the word solo in the New Testament. He said the word signifies to sing a hymn, to celebrate the praises of God in song. And then W.E. Vine, he said that the word solo means to sing a hymn, to sing praise. Now, Paul said that we are to sing and make melody in our heart to the Lord. The word solo in ancient times meant to pluck, to twang, to pull, to cause to vibrate. Some would ask the question, okay, does he mean then that we are to pluck, to play an instrument? What kind of instrument is Paul legislating here? Well, listen again to what he says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Okay, what's the instrument that Paul is saying is to be plucked or played in our worship to God? It's the human heart, isn't it? It's the heart. And so... In our singing adoration to God, in our praise that is directed to Him, now, do we teach and admonish one another? Well, the answer is yes. I want you to consider with me, if you would, for a moment or two, a chart. If Mike would put it on the board, I think it's on the board. Well, maybe not. Maybe so. All right, think about this. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, Paul said that we are to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The voice, the human voice, can accomplish that, can it not? But think about the instrument. Can an instrument speak in song or in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? The answer is no. Well, what about Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, when Paul said, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? The voice can do that, can it not? But the instrument cannot. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, again, Paul said, teaching and admonishing one another, okay? The human voice can do that, can it not? An instrument can't do that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 15, Paul said, I will sing with the Spirit. Can the voice do that? Can I engage in the process of singing? Reflecting upon the words, yes, I can. All right? The voice can accomplish that, but the instrument cannot do it. And then, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 15, I will sing with the understanding. Again, the voice can do that, the instrument cannot. In Ephesians 5, 19, Paul said, Speaking one to another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody, listen to him, in your heart. Now think about it. The voice can do that, can it? Can the instrument make melody in the heart? No, it cannot. And think about what Paul is saying here. If we are to make melody, and that is literally an instrument there, then we're all bound to use an instrument in our worship to God, are we not? We know that's not the case. So, with regard to what the Bible teaches... Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. That's what 
The Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 17. Now, there are people sometimes that will, in their argumentation for the instrument, they'll say, well, didn't David in the Psalms talk about worshiping God by various instruments? And the answer is, yes, he did. But here's something that we have to remember. David lived under what covenant? He lived under the Mosaic dispensation, didn't he? David did not live under the covenant that we now live under, which is the law of Christ, Galatians 6.2. It's identified as the perfect law of liberty in James 1.25. And James said in James chapter 2, verse 12, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty, not the law of Moses. There were a lot of things that, that those people engaged in, a lot of practices those Old Testament saints engaged in under the Mosaic dispensation that we don't engage in today. Why? Because that old law was nailed to the cross, Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. It was, as Paul said, taken out of the way. So today, we are amenable to what law? The law of Christ. So when the Lord specified that whatever we do in word or deed, we're to do it by his authority. The question could be asked, okay, so what about the instruments of music? What about using them in our worship today? Well, historically, it's a fact. The early apostolic church did not use instruments of music. As a matter of fact, they didn't come into play until hundreds of years later. Biblically speaking, there's no evidence for it. And I would also add this very quickly. When we talk about worshiping God with regard to singing, that means corporately we all sing. We all engage in the song service. It is one of the five acts of worship. We don't hum. We don't whistle. We don't play, a, we don't play an instrument. And we don't clap. Now there are some people that, there are some people in the church today that in the singing service will clap. Well look, this is human skin, isn't it? What if I took dead skin and made a drum? Could I bang on that? Well, no. What's the difference in dead skin or live skin? There is no difference. So we don't have authority for that. Just because some people do it doesn't make it right. It doesn't, it doesn't fall under the authority of Christ. So our goal is to simply do things the New Testament way. We're not trying to be arrogant or haughty or caustic, but rather our goal is to simply say, okay, what does the Bible teach? The Bible teaches that we're to sing and make melody in our heart to the Lord. We do so graciously. And you know, the word acapella means in the style of the chapel or in the style of the church. So we engage in corporate singing, praise to God. And we do so by his authority.
So tonight, I know that it's a lot of material, and we could have spent a lot more time on the subject. Our time is gone. But I would hope and pray that you would continue to study the subject if you have questions. And if you have questions and maybe you don't understand something that was said, please feel free to talk to, to myself, talk to D.O. or Brother Billy or Brother George or one of us, Brother Jared. We'll do our best to give you a Bible answer. Our goal is to do things according to Scripture. Won't you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we're grateful for the privilege and the power of prayer. We're grateful for the opportunity to lift up our voices, our voices in song to you. And Father, we're grateful for the blessings and favors that we have in Christ. And we're thankful for the opportunity to engage in worship. And we pray that our worship might be acceptable in your sight. And help us to always be conscious of doing things according to your word. We ask that you would please give us the courage and the strength that we need to always try to do what's right. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you're here tonight and you're not a New Testament Christian, then we want to encourage you to come to Christ, believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus said, except you believe that I am he, you'll die in your sins, John 8, verse 24. If you believe Jesus to be the Son of God and you would be willing to repent of your sins, confess his name before others, to be buried with him in baptism, the assurance is God will wash away all your sins, Acts twenty-two sixteen. He'll put you in the church. That's what the Bible says in Acts two forty-seven. If you'll be faithful unto death, the promise is the crown of life, Revelation two ten. If you're here tonight and you're not faithful to his cause, you need the prayers of the church, won't you come home? Won't you come back to a loving God who wants you to be back in fellowship with him. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Won't you stand as we sing?